Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by people like you. Patrons through Patreon. Want a patch? Want a plaque? Want to help support this show? Find out how and add your support at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 310, Tribunal. to Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week, we watch a thing, then talk about the thing we watched, sizing it up for meanings and morals and things like that. This week, premiere of an Archon. Miles O'Brien is hauled before a, a tribunal. I've got trivia coming up in a bit, but first... But first, I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember... We may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Uh, you say Miles O'Brien is hauled before a tribunal, do you, John? Yeah, uh, it, it is a tribunal. Mm -hmm. And um, oddly enough, that's the name of the episode. The name of the episode is Tribunal. Okay. Yes. It's not yeah. premiere of an archon. No, no, no. Even though yeah. there is an archon in here. There is um, an archon. It's the return of the phrase archon. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 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 So uh, very exciting Trek tie-ins. Hey, hey, I, I can give you more Trek tie-ins in the trivia. Why don't you? Okay. Today's episode, Tribunal, was written by Bill Dial. Just one credit for the story and the teleplay this week. Now, Bill, we've actually mentioned before uh, because he, he is uh, a person of many talents. Now, he wrote a previous episode of Deep Space Nine we talked about. That would be the alternate also known as the alternate. So you may remember him from that. And you may also remember that Bill actually was well known for working on WKRP in Cincinnati. Uh, he was an actor and a writer and story editor. Now, this episode was directed by, wait for it, Avery Brooks. Now, this is his first directorial credit for TV, though he has a theater background and he is directed there too. His only TV or film directing credits are, in fact, Deep Space Nine. So this is the first time on DS9 that a cast member has directed, going back to that model that was established in Next Gen, the Star Trek Director's School, and Avery was its first beneficiary here. Ken, you mentioned the Archon. I did. Yeah, well, I, I don't think we addressed what an Archon is way back when we talked about Return of the Archons. So... Go back about uh, 2,700 years, if you would. Oh, it only feels like it was that long ago, John. <laughs> well, I'm talking about going back to ancient Greece. Oh, uh, oh my bad. Yeah, yeah not, not just the TOS season one. Uh, go back to ancient Greece and you will find, oh, many changes in the political structure there. Uh, so power from a king shifted to magistrates who oversaw, well, all kinds of different things in Greek society, uh, the military, festivals and social life, yet a chief magistrate to oversee those and many more. These were the archons. So that's where the word comes from. Uh, and yes, see also Return of the Archons, original series, season one. Uh, we have a line here, confession is good for the soul. 
Well, you may have heard that one before. It, it in fact, did not originate on Cardassia. As far as we know, it's from the 19th century, probably Scottish. There's not a really solid lock on exactly where that originated. Now, we have our first look in this episode at Cardassia Prime, and that means a whole new matte painting to celebrate. Now, it was augmented here with video inserts when we see state-run TV, kind of a cool effect, and the credit for that painting goes to Richard Stromberg. We have a reference to Minazaki Koto, a quick reference at the beginning to this Japanese composer, start of the episode, and he was primarily composing in the 1790s in Osaka. He was blind, and he worked in traditional Japanese chamber music, usually performed by a trio. And one of his better-known pieces, Setting Moon, was written in honor of a student who died too young, and it's a rumination about the transient nature of life. So uh, I guess not a bad theme for O'Brien to pick to play for Keiko while they're on their way to the vacation. Now, there's lots of name-checking in this episode, back to Setlick 3 and the Rutledge. That, of course, takes us back to the TNG episode, The Wounded, where we met O'Brien's former captain, Benjamin Maxwell. And we have a name-check to the Enterprise, whose story, by the way, in the production and air date chronology ended last week with the airing of All Good Things. Uh, plus, we have the uh, Prokofiev and the Valdemar. So we have a reference here to early 20th century Russian composer Sergei Prokofiev, who, among other works, composed Peter and the Wolf. And then we have Valdemar Polsen, uh, as the namesake for the third ship named. He was a Danish engineer working primarily in broadcast technology. He came up with a magnetic wire recorder, the precursor to the tape recorder. Let's talk guest stars. So returning this week as Gull Evek is Richard Poe. And of course, Keiko is back, played by Rosalind Chow. The mysterious Raymond Boone is played by John Beck. His name may not be the most recognizable, but he has a pretty impressive resume. He worked steadily since the 1960s, many guest roles on prominent shows, and he was the star of the 1978 TV movie of The Time Machine. Appearances on The Love Boat and Fantasy Island followed, he even appeared in a bit role in Star Trek IV as a waiter. In feature films, just a few standouts, I have to mention. He was in Woody Allen's Sleeper. He was in Norman Jewison's Rollerball. And you have no idea how happy I am to finally work in a reference to the 1976 film The Big Bus, in which he played the driver named Shoulders. Makbar, the chief archon of the Cardassian court, is played by Caroline Lagerfeld, like many on DS9, her career started on the stage before transitioning to film and TV, and she has had many prominent roles. She had recurring spots on Gossip Girl, Beverly Hills 90210, and Nash Bridges. She was in the movie Minority Report, and she racked up guest appearances on TJ Hooker, The Equalizer, ER, The X-Files, and many more. Finally, the great Fritz Weaver is here as conservator Kovat. Uh, he's an actor who worked steadily from the 1950s until he passed away in 2016. Marathon Man, The Thomas Crown Affair, The X-Files, yes, even The Love Boat. Seems like he was in everything, and especially genre productions. He was a guest on Wonder Woman. He was in the Crate segment of 1982's Creep Show. And he was even the first bad guy on the very first episode of The Man from U.N.C.L.E. named The Vulcan Affair. Appropriate to this episode, he was the judge in the original Twilight Zone episode, The Obsolete Man. This was Fritz's only Star Trek appearance. Keiko and Miles are going on a trip. I feel certain it will be free of incident, and that they will have a lovely time. What could possibly go wrong? Prologue. Miles O'Brien and Keiko are headed out for a vacation, but not until Miles can annoy every one of his co-workers with last-minute details. On his way down the promenade to the shuttle, he bumps into an old crewmate, Raymond Boone. They were on the Rutledge together during the war with the Cardassians. Boone is a little aloof, but they promise to catch up some other time as Miles runs off to join Keiko. Boone slips away into a dark room, though where he plays back a recording of the conversation he just had with the chief. 
Act 1. Miles O'Brien isn't one who decompresses easily. He brought tech manuals with him, while Keiko has served up lunch and distracts him away from business with a little flirtation. They're interrupted, though, by a Cardassian ship commanded by Gull Evek. He states that they have ten seconds to come to a stop and allow an inspection team aboard, or else. When the Cardassians beam over, Evek tells O'Brien that he's under arrest for something. He's not saying what, and Miles has no way of denying charges he doesn't understand. He'll be taken to Cardassia Prime to stand trial, while Keiko is taken back to DS9. When Miles tries to fight back, he's stunned by a weapon and beamed out. Act 2. The torture begins. Miles O'Brien, chief of operations at DS9, is stripped, restrained, injected, sampled. He even has a molar removed by his Cardassian captors for their identification bureau. He's trying all he can not to break, not volunteering any information other than his name and rank. In walks an apologetic Cardassian woman, Makbar, the chief archon. She says she wants him to be comfortable, as he'll stand trial in two days. In the meantime, he can meet his lawyer, the conservator, Kovat. On DS9, Keiko is worried about Miles. Sisko says Starfleet has dispatched three ships to the DMZ, but she knows that he's being tortured. Odo assumes as much, too, knowing Cardassian ways. Sisko's hands are a bit tied, though. They don't know where Miles is exactly, and they can't just go barging in. What's that? A call from Cardassia Prime? Sure, we'll take it on speakerphone. It's Makbar, and she says Miles is fine. He's standing trial in a couple of days, and he'll be executed, because the guilty verdict is already predetermined. Keiko is welcome to come watch, though. It's a very efficient system. Odo, knowing a thing or two about Cardassian law, pipes up that he'd like to be there too. Makbar says that privilege is only reserved for officers of the court, but oh, guess what? Odo is one because of Gul Dukat. Fine then. He'll be a nester to the accused. Odo and Keiko leave for Cardassia Prime. Like, now. Sisko turns to Kira that he wants her to investigate any of O'Brien's recent activity on the station. There must be some details they can turn up, even if the chief's attitude about Cardassians might lead them to information they don't want to know. Act 3. Time for Miles to meet his court-appointed conservator, a gentleman named Kovat. Kovat explains what's happening here. The accusation, the crime, guilt or innocence, none of that matters. The outcome has been predetermined because on Cardassia, Trials serve the purpose of reassuring the people that their system works. That's all. O'Brien says he views their proceedings with contempt, and Kovat says to keep that up, it'll make for a great show. At least Kira is looking for evidence. In a weapons locker on DS9, she notes that the photon warheads from a number of torpedoes have been removed. Furthermore, the space occupied by the warheads has been replaced by something inert, a trick you can pull off if you are really good at transporters. Well, that implicates one chief of operations we all know. The other thing that implicates him? The voice print saying, this is Miles O'Brien, that would have gotten him into the weapons locker. It's not looking good. So why would he do it? Well, the McKee stole a bunch of photon launchers a couple of weeks ago. So here's some missing warheads. Was Miles really delivering them on the runabout he and Keiko were using for their getaway? And who was waiting to take delivery? Odo has arrived to see Miles. It's not the rescue Miles was hoping for. In fact, Odo goes into full Odo mode, asking all kinds of questions. Does he know anyone in the Maquis? Has he supplied weapons to anyone in the Maquis? Why was he in Weapons Locker 4? The Cardassians did find something on the shuttle but he has no idea what or how anything got there. O'Brien says he's just a loyal Starfleet officer, trying to do his best every day, and he doesn't understand why he's here, now, accused of a crime. Otis says he'll be there on the defense team, and he expects Miles to have the clear, unwavering eyes of an innocent man. Act 4. That voice print was a fake. It was Miles's voice, but it was a mashup. That's what Dax has determined. 
Here's something else to chew on. Kira has narrowed down any of the Maquis who were recently on DS9 to one man, Raymond Boone. There are three people on the promenade who saw Boone talking to O'Brien right before O'Brien left. Time to bring him in for questioning. Now it's time for the trial to begin. Miles is brought in, and he says he is not pleading guilty. Next comes Keiko, who announces to the Archon that she will in no way testify against her husband. Odo throws the proceedings for a loop when he asks to address the conservator and relay that he's got the scoop on the doctored audio. Well, that simply won't do. No new evidence can be admitted after a sentence has been passed. Odo is there, like Kovat, to uh, put on a good show. And if Odo does this again, he'll be held in contempt. No, no new evidence. So says the Archon. Sisko and Kira begin questioning Boone on DS9. He's not exactly torn up about Miles's predicament. Suspicious enough, Sisko asks him to be held. Later, Bashir enters his lab, and the lights aren't working. It's the perfect mysterious setting for a shadowy figure from the Maquis to creep up and tell the doctor that Boone is not from the Maquis, and he's also not one of us. Act 5 Gullivec appears live via satellite in court to present his evidence. He's got it all from unnamed, reliable sources that the warheads found on the runabout were about to be delivered to the Maquis in the DMZ. How did he know? Well, that's a matter of national security. Okay, thanks, bye. Things haven't slowed down on DS9. Cisco brings Boone into the medical lab. A few more questions. Why hasn't Boone talked to his parents in eight years? Or his wife? And where has he been since Setlik 3? The trial resumes, and Kovat's appeal to Miles to just confess, for the sake of the show, of course, goes unmet. So he tries a new course. Maybe abuse from his parents. Maybe from his spouse. He's trying to create a narrative about the criminal mind, and it's just not working. The Archon takes over, though, prodding O'Brien for how many Cardassians he's killed— not now, but during the war. He did kill, didn't he? And what about now? Doesn't he still hate Cardassians? Hasn't he said they can't be trusted? He admits it. That's just the opening Kovat needs to concede the trial, but Miles does not. Just then the door opens and in walks Raymond Boone, followed by Sisko. When the Archon sees him, she's ready to hand down the sentence— the court will show mercy by handing Miles O'Brien back to Commander Sisko. More shocked than anyone else seems to be Kovad, who, sadly, has won his first case. And so close to retirement, too. On the runabout back home, Sisko explains that in the examination, Boone was revealed to be a Cardassian who was surgically altered to look like and replace the late Raymond Boone, who was killed at Setlik III. The trial wasn't about O'Brien, it was about some Cardassians trying to set up Starfleet to make it look like they were behind arming the Maquis. It's over now, and Sisko insists that Miles and Keiko finally take the vacation they deserve. The end. All right, let's start at the start. Okay. It never occurred to me until this viewing, no one on Deep Space Nine, with the exception of uh, Sisko, mm -hmm. has a second. O'Brien's telling Cisco oh, yeah. and Kira and Dax how to do various aspects of his job. Mm. And I was like, why isn't he telling his assistant? And it's because he doesn't have one. But nobody <laughs> does, right? Yeah. I mean, now, yeah. in fairness, the last time he had an assistant, that assistant tried to assassinate Beryl. Oh, okay. All right. Bad choice. Yeah, yeah. But still, I mean, I understand there are only 300 people. But again, mm -hmm. there is so much room on Deep Space Nine. I think each one of those people could have another person. Yeah, yeah, you can chalk up the thing with the assassin to, like, an HR error. Um, but everybody else, like, you know, Dax can step in for medical stuff every now and then, but, right. but that's not really her calling. So, right. yeah, you, you need other people. Right. He's chief of operations, and that's or chief engineer, rather. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it's not hard to be the chief engineer when you're apparently the only engineer there. Right. Because he's spending right. Right. all of his time going, uh, you, the military person, I need to tell you about this thing that's not working. And you, science officer, need to tell you how to restart these uh, spark plugs or whatever I do over here. 
and uh, he's apparently you know schooling Cisco on how to do his job. And I'm thinking he needs he needs like another engineer, just one, you know, for he when he goes away. He does. He does. Yeah. And and actually, speaking of that, I mean, sure, everybody wants Miles to leave already. They mm-hmm. want him to get out of there. But but I'm thinking the things that he's saying, as you point out, he has no second in command. He has no assistant. Right. What if those things are really important? Yeah. Like, he didn't get to finish saying what that new subroutine in the Habitat <laughs> ring was all about. So what if that subroutine is like, uh, at nine o'clock, all the oxygen is going to be sucked out through an airlock? You know, that actually would have been a fascinating thing to see. Like, like nothing actually happens to O'Brien the whole time he's gone. The whole thing just becomes them coming to appreciate what Miles actually does. <laughs> right, right. Right. Because they're like, this stuff practically runs itself, doesn't it? And mm-hmm. then he's gone for like six hours. And it turns out, no. Yeah. No, because the replicators are still full of Cardassian voles, as far as we know. Yep. There you go. You know, he's, that's just that's what mess. he's been spending most of his time doing, as a matter yeah. of fact. Yeah. Speaking of no seconds as we are, uh, where's Keiko been? Because I worry about the school children on board DS9. And it's just like you announced about six months ago. Uh, oh, yeah, she's visiting her parents. Yeah. And, and then she's just not to be seen again until it's time to take a vacation. So, you know. I don't think I like what you're accusing her of, mister. I just look, it's like I get it's the, uh, the pretense of TV that we have our main characters. But we have important secondary characters like uh oh like like you got a jake who we we see every now and then i'm sorry who you got it you got it here's another name nog you seen that guy in a while nog nog Mm -hmm. doesn't ring a bell i know i know (laughs) yeah (laughs) uh and how about their vacation so miles brought so many tech manuals yeah and, and again i'd just like to point out a separate pad for every manual. Oh, they were so close, though. They were so close. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really were. They were so close because, I mean, you're right. It's an individual iPad for each thing, right? <laughs> right. And they yeah. didn't, I mean, they were so close on that. I mean, I, 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 I'm still pretty impressed because if he had brought like an encyclopedia, it still would have been on one pad. They were just so close to what the future was going to be on that whole thing. So, yeah, yeah. I, I can't yeah. blame him for that. Uh, Shades of Scotty, by the way. Um, I think it was The Trouble with Tribbles. I can't remember. But there was an episode mm-hmm. where Scotty had to be confined to his quarters. I want to say it was for starting that fight that is still going on on K7. Yeah, right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. And he was confined to his quarters and he was stoked because it meant more time to read his technical manuals. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now here's another chief engineer. Yeah. Hey, great. I got I got like a week. Yes. I'm going to read technical manuals and also talk to. um. Ah, What's her name? I know. <laughs> It starts it starts with a hard C sound. I think it's a K. I'm not 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was a really fantastic thing. Look, I'm, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sound like I'm bashing their relationship. I, let, me, let me go ahead and say something good about their relationship in this okay. episode. Yeah. I like the kiss. Okay. I like right. the kiss Fair between enough. the two of them. It was very, and I don't know, honestly, I had a debate with, with a friend of mine. I don't know if it was, you know, that they had done that scene so many times that they were punchy. Mm-hmm. Because the the giggling and 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 it felt so real. It felt mm-hmm. almost more real than anything that we've seen between the two of them. That it kind of felt like they must have done yes. that take like nine times, nine times, nine times nine to times. get that to get that level of you know comfort and also goofiness. I really like that scene though. I like that part. Yeah. Um, yeah. And now I'm going to go back to bashing them. Um, okay. <laughs> maybe we should have brought Molly with us. Do you think she'll be okay with the uh, Petersons, says Miles. And Keiko says she likes the Petersons more than she likes us. And I'm thinking, well, who can blame her? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you for saying what I was thinking. Okay. Yes. Good. <laughs> no problem at all. Good call. Hey, I, I have to. I have to point out uh, there's some food in this episode. A little bit of food on the shuttle. Uh, Keiko, first of all, she has a space placemat nice. that she brought. Very glad to see that kind of a shiny, sparkly purple thing. Very nice. Um, and it looks like the bowls have some veggies in them. I'm going to guess eggplant, uh, some zucchini. I'm hoping some of that is tempura fried. Sort of looks like that. So um, I'm in favor of all of that. And they didn't even uh, they didn't even touch it. No, 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 no. Yeah. That, that was really the worst part of the episode for me. <laughs> I didn't get to live through their enjoyment of uh, that spread. Um, 
Odo, by the way, uh, still just just right there with the Odo bedside manner we've come to expect. Uh, Keiko's like, I'm terrified that they're torturing my husband. And Sisko's, well, oh, gee, wow, uh, so we really don't know. And Odo's like, yeah, pretty much torture. Uh, that's that's what's going on. <laughs> so... <laughs> And then, and then the the Cardassians. It's like uh, we we hear a couple of times uh, said to Miles, "Remove your clothes," and then he doesn't comply. And then the clothes are forcibly ripped from Miles. And then a minute later, Archon comes in. Here are your clothes. So I'm just going to call it the Cardassians are just into some weird stuff. They are. Yeah, it's true. But that bright mm-hmm. light as well, which I understand. Yeah. I mean, it's it's all about intimidation. I get that. Sure. Although I thought sure. you saved the bright light for the actual interrogation, not the. You know, yeah, not just the telling people what to do. But, you I know. mean, again, weird stuff. That's that's what they're into. I, I guess that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting when Kovat is uh, talking to Miles during the trial. Mm-hmm. I'm going back to what I was doing a minute ago, by the way, when he's like, were you abused as a child? What about spousal abuse? Was your wife causing you, you know, severe psychological distress? And O'Brien says, I love my parents. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and in fairness to my wife, I leave my socks everywhere. So, you yeah. know, I had it coming. Let's be yeah. let's, let's be honest. Uh, there is a, a great delivery of a line here when uh, when Mokbar, the, the Archon, says to uh, Cisco, uh, I see you live up to your reputation. And he says, that's right. I do. That that's just, you know, that's a great <laughs> line delivered. Well, I thought I don't even care what you think my reputation is. Yeah, I, I, precisely. Absolutely, I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. you just admit to it as well. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. Wait. What? What is my reputation exactly? <laughs> Doesn't matter. Own it. <laughs> All right. There Own you go. It. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, something a little bit troubling about this episode, and I don't think it's going to surprise anybody that I'm troubled by it. But we also mm-hmm. don't really explore it that much, and I'm troubled by that too. Yeah. The Maquis are deep enough in Deep Space Nine that they know what's going on in Deep Space Nine enough to get, hey, we need to like wave them off this whole Boone thing because he's not one of ours. Yeah, yeah, that that is some deep cover stuff. Because like the Cardassian conspiracy, we get like they manufactured it, they put the guy there, so that that's fine. But for the actual Maquis to know what's going on, and remember, there's only a handful of people who are working on this at this point. You got Cisco, you got Kira, you got Dax, you got right. Bashir, and that's it. Again, you got a small number of people on DS Nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, they're that they're, fast. they're that deeply embedded. In that small an organization, yet it can't be uh, can't be tracked. Yeah, All right. yeah precisely. That's fine. Yeah. Hey, I'm uh, just going to mention here, going to plant this early on that if uh, rebuilding someone's body into an entirely different species is possible in the future, maybe just maybe transporters should have some kind of verification built in. <laughs> Maybe I'm, I, you know, I mean, maybe we'll never see that again in a future Star Trek. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's just a thing that'll never happen again. Yeah, I, who cares but, about the Dominion? I'm sorry, who cares yeah. about shapeshifters? <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> right. if everybody can do this, then what's the big mm-hmm. deal about a shapeshifter? It's like, oh yeah, really? Yeah, I built three yeah. just like you last week. So right, you're not right. you're not scaring me. Yeah, Dr. Crusher turned you into a Romulan one week, back to human the next, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Cardassians can make a perfect human out of a Cardassian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good mm-hmm. enough to fool his wife and his parents. Okay. Mm. Matt, yeah, that's that's a lot of, like, belt sanding and stuff that I want to know about. This. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. At least they didn't have to take out an extra heart, though. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Boy, that would be rough. That would be rough here, Klingon. Oh, I don't a think work. anybody could do that. No, that's too much work. Um, security thing to point out. Uh, let's get this memo to Odo. Uh, it just takes a voice print to get into the room where they keep the photon warheads. Yeah. Uh, let's maybe beef that up. I'm going to suggest like a password or a PIN number. Two-factor authentication is your best friend. Something you know and something you have. Yeah. Those are the two things. <laughs> there yep. you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of which, uh, good job, Odo. Way to, like, you know, let, let's mount cameras in quarks, mm-hmm. but let's not put one outside the weapons locker for Deep Space Nine. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, yeah. quarks up to something. What could the weapons possibly be up to? Okay. I see you're thinking, but it's not really yeah. the weapons that we're worried about. It's people <laughs> accessing the weapons. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. Never thought about that. See, I used to just keep people with clubs outside of the weapons locker. You know, back in back in the Cardassian days. Yeah, you just crack the skull. And exactly. Say, yeah, sometimes, sometimes yeah. it was the guy coming to relieve the next guy, and right. you, and you felt kind of bad. Yeah, but but he looked at you funny. Yeah, well, so it, it kept order. Yeah. It kept order, yeah. and that's really yeah. what it's all about. Odo says to Miles uh, when he's trying to to talk him through this this show trial. Hey, look, some of the great figures of history have been accused of crimes, and I thought, oh, this episode missed the perfect opportunity to play at our favorite Star Trek meme, which is you name two real things from history, and then you throw in a fake science fiction one. So uh, the great figures who have been accused of crimes, you could say like Galileo and Martin Luther King and Garlock of Zebulon Four. Totally missed it. If man ever does colonize the stars, finding new worlds to call home across the cosmos, will we change Earth's name to Earth Prime? So continuing our analysis of Odo, Mm -hmm. we know that when a Cardassian trial begins, somebody's going to be found guilty. In fact... They've already been found guilty, otherwise there'd be no trial. And we've heard that before, not just in this episode, we've heard that before when we're dealing with Cardassians, right? Odo was an officer of the Cardassian court, which basically means Odo was an instrument of Cardassian justice. Yeah, yeah. Discuss. <laughs> well, remember, it was just last week that we were talking about Odo being a little sanctimonious about mm-hmm. uh, those who collaborated with the Cardassians. Right. Uh, uh, Odo can find himself, should find himself very firmly on that list. Uh, Odo's ties with the Cardassians uh, go a little deeper every time we dig a little more. Right. And yeah. and yet he, he can somehow find it in his heart to bash somebody else who actually sold out their people to the Cardassians. Now, in fairness, mm-hmm. Odo didn't sell out his people to the Cardassians. Well, he doesn't have any. He yeah. just sold out people. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a very, it's a very different thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but it, do we just assume that in the last few years, Odo has had a change of heart um, or he's just, uh, he likes now getting a regular paycheck from uh, Starfleet or or whomever is supporting him, the Bajorans. Well, I mean, you can say that, except again for the part where he was all over the uh, the collaborator, the first of many collaborators in last week's episode, the collaborator. <laughs> right. He was all over that guy, right? Like, you know, oh, yeah, yeah you sold out your people. Well, mm-hmm. look in a mirror. I mean, I'm yeah, just yeah. saying, and, and oh, wait, make your face look like me first, then look in a mirror because, you know, you're basically talking yeah. about yourself, kind of. Whatever form you want to take. Look in a mirror. Except, yeah. of course, he wasn't selling out, again, his people. Mm-hmm. But it's just weird, too. Yes. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff in this episode that uh, made me think of other pop culture. Kind of uh, satire, uh, almost. So, I actually, I thought of the movie The Running Man. Mm. You, you've seen it? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Have I seen and, it? Uh, oh, man. Of course. I love that movie. I, of seriously, course. And it's bad, and I still love it. It's bad, but it's wonderful. And yes. of course, the late, great Richard Dawson. Uh-huh. And and uh, the the things that I thought of with that uh, vis-a-vis this episode or just the idea that it's all about the show. The show is important because the show is what helps to mold society. Yeah. And uh, that movie, for those in our audience who haven't seen it, it, it is a wonderful piece of satire about pop culture, about the power of TV, about media, about the ability to manipulate those things in order to shape public opinion. And uh, that that's what this episode does very nicely. Less extreme, <laughs> but but that is certainly a, a touch point that I found. So it sounded like you were about to say something there. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, it's some amazing uh, performances in that movie and some really terrible performances as well in that movie. Oh, wait, sure. But Richard Dawson, seriously, was just, was incredible on that because he had always been kind of like, you know, fun and, 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 and cute. And mm-hmm. he was, mm-hmm. uh, he was, he was just, man, he was brutal in that movie and, yeah. and just wonderful, wonderful in that movie. He, he's sort of the, the Kovat 
uh, in the respect that he is he's dedicated to the point of what they're doing, except that Richard Dawson is in that movie just kind of purely evil, yeah. you know, um, completely blinded by what they're doing. Well, I'm curious because Richard Dawson knew that everything that they were doing in The Running Man was uh, spoiler, by the way, the movie did come out, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, 87 I think so something like that. Yeah, we're yeah. we're talking like 30 years later. So if you yeah. haven't seen that, I'm going to put it on you. <laughs> but I'm also going to give you like another like 3 seconds. Yeah. before I say Richard Dawson knew that everything that he said was a lie. Yeah. Do you think Kovat does? That's a great question. Thank you. Um <laughs> yeah, uh, because I I think it's impossible to answer and and that's okay for an episode like this. Um he Look, so many people that we've met from Cardassia who are so dedicated to the system of Cardassia, whether it's Garrick or or Dukat or the Archon in this episode or Kovat, uh, they pour everything everything they have into maintaining the structure of the Cardassian system. Mm-hmm. And whether or not it's true with a capital T at the end of the day is academic. You know, because that, that it, it misses the point of, of what they're trying to do. That's true for a lot of them. I would say that is not true for the Archon, because the Archon knew the second Boone came in that the, mm-hmm. that the jig was up. The Archon knew that, you know, they were actually up to some dirty dealings, that it was like the Section 31 version, maybe, of, <laughs> of Cardassia that, right. had, that had done that. Um, everybody else, though, I mean, you can go back to the conversations between Garrick and and uh, and Bashir, right? Like mm-hmm. anytime Bashir says, don't people have a right to, you know, find out who they are for themselves? And Garrick will say something along the lines of a Federation ideal, if ever there was one. Yeah. Right? I right. mean, yeah. the Cardassian, the whole Cardassian thing is about the is about the uh, about the, the wheels turning and, and the gears not, you know, coming to a halt. On Cardassia. Yeah. In fact, I, ha- I had an idea, and I'm curious what you think of it. Okay. You could boil the Cardassian system of jurisprudence into one single phrase. Okay. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, or the one. Ouch. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, don't, I don't like it. Don't misunderstand. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's a, I'm not saying it's right. And yeah. yet you can make the case, I think. And, of course, uh, on Cardassia, yeah, yeah. Uh, that case would absolutely fly. Mm-hmm. Or on Cardassia Prime, anyway. I can't speak for all the Cardassias, but on Cardassia Prime, um, yeah. I think they would agree with that, that phrase. Yeah, uh, frighteningly so. But again, we might be saying that they would live up to the letter of that law rather than truly the spirit of that law, <laughs> you know? Um Yeah. Yeah, that that's rough. But but he even says it. Kovat says it on Cardassia. All crimes are solved. All criminals are punished. All endings are happy. Even the poorest of our subjects can walk the streets in the dead of night in perfect safety. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, well, there you have it there. It's the the, the needs of the many um, that are all being served by their total dedication to the state. And yeah, it's this idea that that even if it's a lie, it's okay because it makes people feel good about themselves. Uh, put a pin in that. I might come back to that at the end of our episode today. Um, Here's the this thing: definitely- it's not mm-hmm. it's not a lie as far as Kovat knows. Because I mean, this is the thing: they really yeah, they, yeah, went, yeah. they went to a lot of trouble here, right? I mean, so Boone actually did break into the weapons locker. Mm-hmm. actually did get those weapons onto the shuttle. Mm-hmm. The Cardassians then actually did find the weapons on the shuttle. So it, it sure looks like Miles is guilty. Now, there is a segment of whatever's going on there. Like, I find it hard to believe that everybody was in on that. Like, I don't think Kovat had any idea who Boone was. I was surprised, honestly, to find that the Archon knew who Boone was. But right, right. Kovat had no idea who Boone was. Kovat, I don't think, was in on it. Kovat's job is to be a sycophant. Kovat's mm-hmm. job is to say, Cardassia for the Cardassians. Kovat's job is to say, our system works. And you know how our system works? Because our system works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. I mean, and that's so, I mean, it's when you say it's a lie, I mean, yes, in this particular case, it's a lie. And it's probably a lie a lot of times, but I don't think most people involved actually know that. 
one of the most chilling things in this episode, there are three kids in the courtroom. They're kids. Mm -hmm. And and, Mm -hmm. and, and, and I would imagine that there are always kids in the courtroom. And I don't think Mm -hmm. these kids have anything to do with what's going on. I think those kids are there to see that the Cardassian system works. And if there's ever a time in their teens, in their 20s, in their 30s and beyond that they're wondering, does the system work? They're going to remember that time that they sat in the court and saw that horrible traitor to Cardassia. You know, whatever he did, whoever it was, Miles this week, some guy who was jaywalking next week, maybe some kid from another planet who accidentally stepped on flowers. <laughs> well, that, that kid had it coming. <laughs> they're going to remember. Uh, yeah. They're going to remember that the system works. I mean, it's a it, the repetitive. Look, I've had a lot of bad things to say about Deep Space Nine. I am loving what's happening with the Cardassians. They are such a well-realized society. They're terrible. Mm -hmm. They're horrible Mm -hmm. to deal with. They're very bad neighbors. But it's very convincing. Oh, man. I mean, what they got, what what the writers have going here with their court system, what the writers have going here with their repetitive epics. I mean, they, they, if they don't, they know the Cardassian system. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing to watch as sort of evolve. I'll uh, I'll say it right now. I like them better than Klingons. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's probably because they got to start from scratch, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, well, uh, TNG got to start from scratch. They weren't, I mean, uh, with the Klingons, it's like, it's sort of like in the 80s when they were starting again with Star Trek, right? Uh, going into TNG or maybe even a little mm-hmm. bit before that in the movies. You kind of had to look at it and go, you know, we basically had clowns. <laughs> as our enemies let's try to toughen those guys up a little bit but it still comes off kind of weird the Cardassians are just you know scary from the word go yeah uh, I will say this about Kovat um, you're right his job is to be a sycophant uh, he's not dumb he, he's good at his job uh, he is he is willfully ignorant about the idea that there could be other evidence to exonerate Miles and I would say that in his decades long career of doing this mm-hmm. there have to have been other examples where that came up where he did the same thing so i i think at a certain point he he has to know that that even if it isn't this case there are times when he has essentially had to lie or allow the lie of omission for the state except he at one point was probably one of those kids sitting in the courtroom seeing that the system always works mm-hmm I mean, it's, I, I, I get what you're saying. There's, there's almost no doubt that he has been part of a trial where the person who was found guilty was not, in fact, guilty. The question I have, though, is would a Cardassian who is charged for something they didn't actually do sit there and go, well, I probably had it coming for some reason because it's for <laughs> right. Cardassia, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's possible. Yes, it's possible that half the people that go through the system are are not guilty, except that, you know, well, I must be guilty because this system works. And we know the system works because oh, I remember, you know, reading 27 books, each seven volumes, yeah. all about how, you know, uh, the system works. Uh, plus, I remember that time I was a kid and I watched the system work. So maybe I even did it. Heck, I don't know. Well, so what would be interesting is what happens to Kovat next, because now his faith has been shaken. And I like this, that we see cracks in the monoculture. Mm. Uh, so we, we've met some good Cardassians like Maritza in Duet, and we've seen Gold Dukat have his faith shaken a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, you come back to uh, Kovat a year later, 10 years later, he's retired, hopefully. And he's like, oh, man, but that, that one time, <laughs> that was, wait, that was a show trial, but in the worst sense of the word. <laughs> so, yeah, you know. I won- actually yeah. wondered, uh, the last, I believe his last line was, they're going to kill me. Yeah, which may very well be uh, literal as well as figurative. Right, yeah. because I was wondering if, like, you know, so he's fine, and, you know, it was, it was the Archon who decided. Yeah. No, 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 he gets to be like, go, but then six months from now, is it, you know, well, uh, that case was botched by the conservator, and then a mm-hmm. year from now, the conservator was found to be in league. 
uh, with Miles, and then he is put to death. Yeah. Maybe, because, hey, of course, I mean, he's a failing in the system, and the system works. Yeah. Well, uh, here's a, a question from a, a different angle. Uh, since this is about Miles, mm-hmm. uh, does he get any growth in this episode? So he, he fought in the war. He hated Cardassians at the time. Uh, but he's cooled off a bit because he realizes the war is over and they're just people at the end of the day. He's he's doing the right thing uh, by what we hope would happen to these people who went through this terrible experience. Uh, but now they've captured him, tortured him, tried to use him as an example. So the next time he says he hates or doesn't trust Cardassians, can we cut him some slack? You know, I'm, and I'm not saying that literally to me and you. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I'm just curious because he, he's the guy who has had more experience than anybody except for like, well, Kira. Kira right. <laughs> you know, um, he, he's been in the thick of it. Mm-hmm. And when you, you cut to Miles saying, like, oh, you can't trust them. They're terrible. They did all these awful things. Well, we can go like, yeah. And, and now that's happened to you twice in uh however many years that, that you've been in this situation with Cardassians. So yeah, we can keep saying you uh the war's over, you get to grow past it. Oh, but every time you happen to have an encounter, it's absolutely awful. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um you do kind of wonder about what he said to Boone when he thought he was talking to Boone. You know, the whole mm. thing about yeah, Boone's like, yeah, so I'm living on this planet. And uh, and Miles is like, wow, isn't that on the Cardassian side of stuff? And Boone's like, mm. yeah, you know, but they're yeah, it's fine. They leave me alone. And Miles is like, wow, I don't think I could do that. So I'm just going to stand like you know six feet over the line from where the Cardassian, yeah. which is kind of which yeah. is kind of where he's put himself. So I'm not saying. I mean, do you cut him some slack? Sure, I guess so. Yes. I mean, I, I, yeah. I don't see how you couldn't because he is yeah. a, he's once again a a recent victim of a recent atrocity. Yeah. Um, you kind of have to question why he would leave himself in that situation. But, of course, the reason you leave him in that situation is because we're writing Deep Space Nine. And we want Cole Meany to have a prominent role on that show. So mm-hmm. <laughs> that's where <laughs> right. he's going to be. Yeah. Speaking of the uh, conversation Miles was having uh, with Boone when he thought it was Boone. Did Cisco do the right thing turning Boone over to the Cardassians? Fake Boone, imitation Boone, now with less Boone? <laughs> uh, I think so. I, I think Cisco knows that everything with the Cardassians right now is a bit tenuous, given the demilitarized zone, given the Maquis, given everything that has led up to this point. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think this is about as cool as you can play it. By, by just standing in the corner, just sort of standing in the back of the room, waving and going, we got your guy. We got your guy. He's right here. Mm-hmm. Um, without turning it into an interplanetary incident. Um, now, of course, there will be a report written. Starfleet will know what happened. You can just file that away for the next time this kind of thing comes up. But uh, what what of Boone at that point? Well... Boone, Boone will either be uh, executed by the Cardassians for failing at his job, or uh, Boone will retire somewhere uh, looking conspicuously human among a bunch of other Cardassians, unless he can go back to the guy who can reverse the uh, plastic surgery he had. Yeah, you see, I don't know that they did right by turning him back over to the Cardassians. Because at this point, they got, now they have nothing over the Cardassians. Right. We know what you Mm -hmm. did, but we gave you the guy that would prove that you did what you did. So now I got nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. Bring him to the court is fine. I mean, it's a real Frank Pentangeli moment. Mm -hmm. Right. Or or Frank Pentangeli's brother. Anyway, Um, they see the thing. They decide, okay, we can't do this because then everything's going to come out. You don't you don't then (laughs) you don't show your cards. Right. And then leave, yeah. and then leave it all there. I think you take Boone back because now the Cardassians just get away with it, and I don't yeah. I don't quite understand that. I mean, and you could either use that as leverage, like Cisco could use that as leverage against the Cardassians the next time you know they come knocking on DS 9s door, or really the thing to do is to say thank you. We'll take our engineer. We'll also take um, his compatriot from the Rutledge. <laughs> we'll be on our ways, and then you turn uh, you turn Boone over to. Uh, you turn Boone over to 
Starfleet. Maybe the good people at section, I don't know, 30, section 32, uh, some section. There's probably some section that could deal with him, is my thinking. Yeah, yeah, and, some, some office. <laughs> right, as, and as I long as you're going to deal with that kind of thing, uh, you know, why not deal with that kind of thing instead of saying, I'm just going to leave this here. So, everybody is just fine? I guess? Assuming so, let us see what we can take from Tribunal. The episode is called Tribunal, and we know why the episode is called Tribunal, so we won't spend a lot of time talking about why it's called Tribunal. Instead, we'll talk about the messages, morals, and meanings, and whether the whole thing holds up today. In fact, that is where we begin. Uh, does this episode, Tribunal, John, does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it definitely holds up. Um, it, it's a very interesting look at this powerful piece of propaganda to sway opinions and keep people in line. Uh, and that that's all very interesting, all very well and good. Um, but for our characters, it's a piece of drama involving Miles O'Brien. So re- really, that's as far as the storytelling, as far as the production goes, yes, we take one of our central characters and give him something uh, meaty to chew on and, and also do this weird uh, exploration into an alien culture by doing that. Um, some similarities here, of course, to Chain of Command. Uh, you, you can't ignore that, of course, with uh, Picard being tortured. Very famous episode of TNG. Um, you know, the only thing that felt clunky to me in this episode was the very end, where you have the uh, exposition by Cisco just saying, well, here's what happened and here's why it happened. And here, you know, that was that. But fine. Look, you got to wrap it up at some point. Everything that had led up to that was so good. And man, uh, Fritz Weaver is just amazing. He's so riveting. He's so good. And what a fascinating character uh, that that is the type you don't see a lot of on TV. Um he was just great. And also, uh, we've seen him a few times before, but Richard Poe as Gull Evac, I think this is my favorite performance, uh, just because he had a bit more to do. Mm. So uh, my favorite of his so far. Um, so, yeah, just a lot of terrific stuff in this episode. Uh, a lot of interesting ideas um, and very well presented and well performed. I, I got really no complaints here. How about you? Yeah, about my only problem is with the end, but uh, for a different reason than you. I don't mind Cisco explaining everything that happened. I'm actually mm-hmm. okay with that. I'm a little bothered that, like, Miles O'Brien, you've just been tortured and put on trial for your life. What are you going to do now? I'm going to, you know, vacation land, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's it's weird because this is another one of those things where it's like, well, yeah, all's well that ends well. Okay, maybe, except he might need to see somebody like yeah, I would say, four yeah, times maybe a lag- week and be yeah. medicated for a while. Yeah. yeah, maybe Lagoon is code for a therapist. That's uh, <laughs> maybe that's so, what uh, we call it the Lagoon, right? Uh. But it's actually it's actually a psych ward on, you know, Tantalus four. Nice. Is that where it is? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But otherwise, I mean, otherwise I like it. Like I said, I like the moment of it's so rare that I feel like Miles and Keiko, that those characters actually, and maybe it's the actors. I don't know. It's so rare that I feel anything genuine between those two. Mm. And I did in this episode. And that, that weird, you know, he's like got to be contorted in a strange way, kissing her, but they're laughing. It felt like Mm -hmm. it it was a great, that was a great scene, honestly. Yeah. And there are so many times that you watch them and you're like, I don't even know if these two have met. (laughs) Right. And so it's really, it was really, that was a wonderful thing to see. And then everything else that you mentioned, um, uh, Gullivac is honestly one of my favorites. I don't know what it is because usually you're right. You only get him for like a minute to maybe five in an episode, but he's great every time. And yeah, um, um, Kovac was just, did I say that right? Kovat. Kovat. Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah, Not Kovat. Uh, Kovat. 
uh, was just, um, yeah, I, he is just a, a fantastic character to take apart. It's a fantastic um, performance. Just, yeah, yeah, kind of loving that stuff. Yeah. Um, do you want to do messages or do you want me to move on to like my thing on that? Yeah, well, I tell you what, I'll, I'll hit you with, with what I think, and, right. uh, and you, you wrap this up. So, I mean, I, I think this is one of those episodes where we haven't used these terms in a long time, but this is not a UC Timmy, it's not Star Trek necessarily making a statement, uh, and certainly not about show trials or injustice. I don't think that's the core idea here, even though there are interesting ideas that come up from that, and their their dive into sort of this uh, uh, Orwell 1984 world that is Cardassia. Um, so they get to ruminate about the weird mess that is the Cardassian way of doing things. Um, and I say mess from our point of view, clearly it's working very well for the Cardassians. Mm -hmm. um, but it really is a vehicle to tell the, the story of O'Brien, to, to serve the drama of the O'Brien story. So that that's all very well and good. Um, but a couple of uh, interesting ideas here. Um, one, we've talked a bit about capital punishment before, I think more so when we were talking in TOS. And interesting to me to visit the Cardassians uh, with this point of view, where they want family members to be there so the public can see them weep. And I think I even mentioned at one time when we were talking about capital punishment in our TOS days, that it was always interesting to me that, you know, you go back a couple of hundred years and executions were public things. And I am no fan of capital punishment and I'm no fan of, of making that a public thing. But it was an interesting societal construct that sort of drove home the idea that um, uh, these potentially are your neighbors, the, these are people from your town, from from your society, and this is what's happening to them uh, when they're out of line. It, it sort of uh, it, it drove home this connection between the people that was happening to and the people who were watching it. And I remember reading a, an interesting article about the sociology of all of that, saying that now what we have is when there is capital punishment for a crime we sort of present it in such a way that it's very easy to dissociate from that person who is being executed uh, because there is such a distance and that person can be painted as a monster primarily because usually the crimes are monstrous. Um, but it, uh, it, it sends a different message then to the people who are, uh, who are reading about it in the news or, or, or hearing about it. But there's still a level of distance there that changes the relationship and understanding that we have with how capital punishment is carried out. So interesting that they would create this construct around uh, around how the Cardassians do things. The other interesting thing that I thought that, that is so fascinating and embodied here in Kovat is the idea of the lie that benefits society. Kovat even says, well, think of the children. Mm -hmm. You know, the truth here doesn't matter. Just think of the think of the children. And to me, you know, there's there's a funny version of this and there's a not so funny version of this. And the funny version of this is um, it, it, it's kind of uh, a, a thing on the Internet. It's not not a single meme, but a collection of memes when people will go online and they'll they'll post a clearly untrue story mm -hmm. that somehow lionizes them or their children or their family members. You know, look at this great thing that we did. Look at this amazing moment that we had. And then, of course, my favorite response to that is when people realize it's a lie and write in, oh, and then did everybody clap? <laughs> you know, is, is that how this played out? And it's just something where, where somebody's trying to get across a point, like a, a moral point or, or maybe a self-serving point by telling some clearly BS story about themselves, right? Mm -hmm. The not-so-funny version of this to me is the idea that we continue to use stories and, and it, sometimes 
in a religious context, and sometimes not, uh, to say, well, we're going to tell this story that is full of little white lies to make a moral point. And I remember like David Cross did a, a, a great version of this in one of his stand-up acts where he, he talks about a, uh, a minister who is telling a story about a kid who was like a 13-year-old and riding a skateboard and had to go ask the preacher if uh, God liked kids who rode skateboards too. And David Cross does this excellent takedown of saying, okay, well, the story's a lie. <laughs> you know, the, the story just from beginning to end is a lie. And, and there's a problem with that when you're trying to get across a moral story, but the premise of the story is a lie. And I have a big problem with that. Uh, uh, so seeing an episode like this where clearly they're in the wrong, clearly the Cardassian system is uh, terrible – even if it's not broken for them, for what they're trying to accomplish, uh, from our point of view, we can very easily say, um, yeah, this is morally repugnant to maintain lies in the interest of, well, it's good for the society. Think of the children. It's good for them. So we'll just keep the lie going because we like the way it works out in the end, that everybody stays in line. Everybody does what's expected. And if anybody gets out of line, well, it's very easy uh, from their point of view to just, uh, you know, off with them in a show trial, never have to be dealt with again. It's interesting, though, you don't think that was the point or at least one of the points of the episode, because my feeling is it's like, I mean, first of all, that's what or is it just that that's the kind of thing that both you and I would fixate on? Because this almost seems mm -hmm. to me and I'm not 100 percent certain I'm using the term correctly and I apologize, but it almost seems to me to be sort of like a Swiftian treatment of how far things could go. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like a lot of people like here and, and I'll, I'll now not sound nearly as intelligent, although I really think this is a big thing. Uh, I went to a I went to a panel at Comic-Con uh, last year uh, questioning whether Judge Dredd was a uh, super cop or satire. And the answer is satire. <laughs> OK, <laughs> but but I mean, there are lots of people who, who like read Judge Dredd and think, oh, like, he's so tough. He's so violent and whatever. And they and they really love the fact that, you know, he has one man dispensing justice. Uh, which is not what he was meant to be at all. He was meant to be a joke through and yeah. through. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, the Cardassian system is, is just believable enough, and yet it's completely unbelievable, and yet you can see it happening, especially when you get speeches like Kovats, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. his, like his, his, and I assume it's belief. What he says about the Cardassian system of jurisprudence is inspiring, it's uplifting. I mean, if you can believe in it, it's absolutely incredible. Of course, we also know it's bogus, but we happen to know that the guy that they've charged is completely not guilty of the thing that he did, right? Yeah. And yet I could see how such a system could happen. I can see today how such a system could happen because I've been yelled at by lots of people for saying that seems wrong. And I'm not talking about anything that's happened with this show. I'm talking about other stuff that's happened in my life when I've been fool enough to go on to Twitter and, and, and actually <laughs> express my feeling about something. I've been told to shut up so yeah. many times by so many people because they believe what they believe and they won't hear. They won't even hear questioning of what they believe. I mean, do you really think that this was not at least some part of what was intended by the writers? You really don't no, think they were I, trying to? Yeah, no, I, I, I do think that it is in there. I do think that they're, the writers are certainly aware of it. Okay. I, I think that they, you know, the Star Trek, the original series would give us the, uh, the UC Timmy moment. And, and it's the character saying, here's the moral thing at the end of the story. Mm -hmm. Right. And you and I have, have seen this gray area that DS9 plays and DS9 just sort of says, here's a thing. This is weird. <laughs> you know, or, or this is a morally ambiguous or, or gray area. And here, as we've said many times before, because Cardassians aren't a real thing and the Deep Space Nine space station isn't a real thing, well, we're forced to look at the Cardassians and say, well, anytime there's an alien uh, species on Star Trek, we have to go, okay, well, this is representative of some 
part of the human experience. Right. So no question about it. You, you have to take at least pieces of this and, uh, and go, Oh, wow. Well, if we continue to tell the lies that we think are beneficial because, well, the, the needs of the many rely on this lie, uh, then sure, we can find ourselves at this sort of illogical extreme where we're doing horrible, repugnant things because we feel like the the lie and maintaining that order through the lie is more important. I I, I don't think that any of this was lost on the writers. Um, I, I think that they stopped short of beating us over the head with that uh, kind of classic 60s style you see Timmy moment, but I'm really okay with that in this episode because I think the drama for Miles is front and center. We're probably not going to go back to our Cardassian court like this. I don't know. Maybe I'll be surprised in the next uh, five seasons of <laughs> DS9. Um, but DS9 is not setting itself up as a show about uh, the injustices in the justice system. It's about all the multitudes of this alien culture and how we uh, uh, deal with it. And maybe in a case like this, see pieces of ourselves reflected in it. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Hey, if you want to check out some really cool stuff that the Roddenberry Podcast Network is doing, there's a fantastic place to do it. Podcast.roddenberry.com. Oh, you'll find this show there. You'll find Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, and The Trek Files, podcast.roddenberry.com. If you'd like to help support Mission Log directly, that'd be neat. Patreon.com slash Mission Log is the place to do that. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM at trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, the Gem Hadar. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. While there is a lot to admire about this episode, I think I would prefer a more assertive title. Perhaps, do, or do not. Bunal. There is, no, try. Bunal. And transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. 